0: Day 14 is here. Day 14 of National Podcast Post Month. Hi all, this is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio, kicking off another edition of our anthology for National Podcast Post Month, a.k.a. Napod Pomo. We're ducking back into the lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame today, where Crazy Train and myself induct Flash Gordon into our Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. This is another one of those cases where you might think, wait a minute, you're saying lesser known, but yet everybody's heard of Flash Gordon. Well, it's another case of, have you heard of the character? Do you know just how many tropes came out from characters like this? A lot of people, historians and such, also know that George Lucas wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie in the 70s, and when he couldn't get the rights to do that, he went off and made his own thing, you know, called Star Trek or something like that. But hopefully, you'll see why we inducted the entire franchise, the Flash Gordon franchise as a whole, into our lesser-known geek hall of fame. So we will get to it. Geek Bill Radio. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, fellow geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville's lesser known Geek Hall of Fame. It's been a while since we've done one of these, and in case you couldn't tell from the little musical blip at the beginning of the show, we are inducting another character into our lesser known Geek Hall of Fame. We actually had a little bit of a background, a little bit of a discussion on this, we'll kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and talk about that because joining me as usual for our latest induction into the lesson on geek Hall of fame crazy train jonathan bullock all aboard ladies and gentlemen uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna put
1: flash gordon in i want to say hope everybody had a had a safe fourth of july for our american listeners we're recording this on the fourth of july weekend uh and uh, i can't think of anything more all-american than than flash gordon i mean he's He's very iconic. I think he's going to be one of those characters as we talk about him, you're going to see like you have with our previous entrance, how he was an influence on, you know, comic books and sci-fi for years to come. Um, Mm -hmm. Sorry about the motorcycle driving by. I'm enjoying the, the by by being outdoors, (laughs) sitting on my back porch here at the asylum, enjoying a little, you know, a little, little wreck time. But, um, Let's go ahead and start talking about Flash Girl. I mean, we've already started off with Queen. It's going to be hard to follow that. I mean, (laughs) everything's better with a little John Deacon, Brian May, you know, Freddie Mercury just is what it is. But we'll try, folks. We will try.
0: (laughs) Right. Now, when we were talking about who to induct, we even said on the air a few times that we were planning on inducting villains. And I had considered, well, why don't we induct Ming the Merciless? And, you know, we, we mulled about a little bit. It's like, well... You know, Flash is certainly worthy Worthy? in his own right of being part of this. And, you know, there's a saying, the hero is only as good as as his villains. So we decided we'll induct Flash Gordon. We will talk Ming, of course, since he's the, the main heel of the story. But one of the things that I want to say off the bat when dealing with stuff like Flash Gordon is, of course, people have probably heard of Flash Gordon. And he's one of those characters that I like to say, yeah, you may have heard of him, but how much do you actually know? And I think really, and we'll talk about it later when we get to it, I think a lot of people, when they hear the name Flash Gordon, the first thing that comes into their minds, because I know it is with me, the first thing that comes to mind is that infamous 1980 movie with Sam J. Jones and Max von Sydow and, and all that. I mean, is that the same thing with you, Train? Yeah, I would think yeah, probably.
1: But, you know, it was one of those things where that movie came out in 1980. Uh it's in the middle of the the first run of the, you know, Empire hadn't even come out yet, but Star Wars a New Hope had come out.
0: I think Empire came out in the summer and Flash Gordon was in late 80 cuz I think it came out around the same time as oh, that.
1: See, so. I think it was I thought it was flipped around. I thought but okay. you, I think you're right cuz I think you're right cuz I think at that time Star Wars were always like late spring, early summer releases. They aren't like right. Christmas like yeah, they are yeah, now. May, I think May you're, I think nighttime, Yeah, I think I think you're right. But so I think sci-fi with you know Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica was on television. Uh, the Star Trek movies were getting made. I think there was definitely a resurgence towards sci-fi in in pop culture. I think geek young geeks like Crazy Train and Seth are examples of of that. I mean, it, this is part of our youth. And it made sense for them to dig up an old character like Flash and make a a more updated version, which they did. And I, having a father who grew up in the 40s and the 50s, listening to radio and going to Saturday morning serials, kind of much like with The Shadow, our first inductee, dad kind of smartened me up a little bit about, well, there's a long history to Flash you don't know about. you know. So Mm -hmm. I think the parents and grandparents of our generation – uh, I, I probably enjoyed that movie in the 80s as much as the young kids like me and Xandrax did because it was stepping back to their. Unlike Star Trek and Star Wars, which were newer properties, this was something that was hearkening back to their youth. So uh, I think that, that that was, but it is my first recollection. But like I said, not without the caveat of my dad going, let me smarten you up. There's flashes. He ain't, ain't Luke Skywalker. He's been around a little while, you know, and so that was kind of my introduction to the character. And what my first thoughts are when I hear Flash is the 80s movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we really can't tell the story of the creation of Flash Gordon without mentioning a name that we've discussed before. We, we talked in our second episode, we inducted the Phantom, about King Feature Syndicate. So we'll, we'll be brief here. We go a little bit more detail in the Phantom episode. But King Feature Syndicate were and still are, quite frankly, distributors of newspapers and comic strips throughout the world and they were famous for publishing a lot of these famous strips back in the day. So they also had the hand in, in Flash Gordon, and they were the first to publish them, and Flash Gordon essentially became what we would now call a space opera. You know, a, a lot of that really does have its roots in Flash Gordon. What happened originally is King Features wanted to find something to counter Buck Rogers, because they did not publish Buck Rogers, a a competing strip did. Since they couldn't get the rights to do that, they wound up turning to one of their own creators, their own talents, a man named Alex Raymond, and he developed Flash Gordon. He took a cue from a novel from the early 1930s called When Worlds Collide. It's literally about another rogue planet on a collision course with, with Earth, and that's really how Flash Gordon starts. And the characters that Raymond created were a team that kind of set the the stage for tropes in sci-fi for decades. And really, i, I go so far to say you, you still see it now, because you had the athletic hero in Flash, you had the girlfriend, and you had the scientist. So you have like the three major components of good action. You got got the action star, you got the gal, and then you got the scientist who can combat violence or oncoming threats with science or you reverse the polarity or whatever like they do in Star Trek or Doctor Who and such. And I I think it's fair to say that, right? That that, that kind of trio is pretty iconic to this day in sci-fi, right? To give a Dungeons & Dragons analogy,
1: since this is tied to Geekville, I think Dungeons & Dragons, dragons analogies are apropos uh, I would you know it, it, it's it's a, a fighter a mage and a rogue and that the rogue is usually the also the sex appeal you know this was not the the woke era so things the idea of the damsel in distress the idea of uh, I don't want to say objectification of women but women were the fairer sex and they were presented as prettier and more appealing <laughs> to the masses you know, I've talked to a lot of people my dad's age, and it was a different time. Uh, I don't think it was just the idea of presenting a woman for the heterosexual male audience. I think it was also because there was a little bit of wokeness there. They wanted to put a strong character in there that the girls could relate to, too. You know, Obviously, they were marketing this stuff mostly to boys, but they understood that there was a small but – significant percentage of their readership and listenership that were female as well. I don't know if your research brought anything of that out or you've ever thought about that. But I think that, uh, and I'm sure we'll bring this up again, we always talk about on on these Hall of Fame episodes that when we talk about the characters, try to see how they affected what has become iconic geek culture of today. Star Wars, Star Trek, comic books, things like that. Princess Leia is a pretty no-nonsense, tough chick, but it didn't change the fact that she was very easy on the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can relate that back to Flash Gordon, you know, and every other sci-fi movie television show that uses this trope you're talking about. Um, you got any comments or thoughts on that?
0: No, I, I think you're you're right on the money. And one of the things that I think happened with Dale, you know, the female hero, over Mm -hmm. the years is it was one of those things where it kind of depended on who did the writing Mm -hmm. for the stories that would show what dale would do obviously there were times where she was more the damsel in distress than anything but through the course of the decades you know the 80 some years it's been there's been times where she's done some action herself or she's been clever here and there and she's been the one that that'll save the day so so yeah I, i i think It's fair to say that she is one of those templates that the female hero kind of came out of.
1: Right. I I think that we, we, we stay away from politics and social commentary on our podcast. But I do think that there is a movement with the youth today. They want all their female characters to be the lead, like a Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I actually liked both those movies. Mm -hmm. um i just think that it's not necessary you know you can have a strong female character that is beloved and is important to the story uh without her having the her name in the title card and without being the main protagonist i know that sounds crazy coming from a white dude you know Mm -hmm. oh you're just being sexist you're being racist no i'm not i'm just saying that strong female hero characters have been around a long time this is not a new thing okay We bring this up all the time, and we usually bring it up in the context of comic books and how that really started in the 60s with, you know, DC kind of revamping things and Marvel coming into their own. But here we are talking about a character that predates that by, what, 30 years? Easily, yeah. So it's been around a long time in sci-fi, fantasy, geek stuff. Uh, I I think I've always felt like they were more cutting edge on those type things than any other – Uh, form of entertainment and sometimes they don't get the credit they deserve because their fan base wants to be so vocal about it isn't what they we have now and that's kind of dumb
0: we'll we'll go through the characters here and we we can summarize them and then we'll go into how flash kind of evolved over the years now we did say that buck rogers was first before flash gordon but i think flash is the one that probably had the the most influence overall and the three main characters as we talked about before were alex flash gordon obviously he's almost never called alex but he was the handsome athletic hero in the series he was originally a professional polo player and a graduate of yale university and he's the the swashbuckling action star, never afraid to con- confront evil. He's smart and willing to help people in need, but also, I think, show the good in people. Because one of the things that has stuck with all of the adaptions of Flash over the years is he tends to get the people that Ming is oppressing to... He's able to get all these... Other warlords or these other princes to rally together uh, to fight Ming. So he's one of those things. Not only is he an action star in his own right, he tends to be the team player that tries to get the other friends or so to fight for the common good. I mean, do, do you think I'm phrasing that okay? Yeah, he's a rebel rouser.
1: Mm-hmm. And no, I don't, I don't. I don't mean the Dwayne Eddie song, though. That is a great <laughs> listen
0: for those <laughs> of the
1: don't those who don't know it. Look it up; it's great. great
0: and great, if you do get talking. the reference, we're you're on your way to being my friend because. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you have, if you don't, look it up. It's iconic fifties guitar picking. But anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah, he's a rebel rouser. I think that uh, it's kind of interesting because I think there's another trope there or at least stereotype that gets knocked on sci-fi and comic book, and you know, oh, they're all just muscle. No, he was actually quite sociopolitical, if you want to want to phrase it anyway. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think when Flash would do that. He was really good at pointing out to the, these people that were being oppressed by Ming that it would they would be better served to fight back and be their own rulers than, than live under his thumb. I also find it unique. I bring this up about Superman and, and his creators being two Jewish gentlemen. This is all happening in the late 30s. Well, what's going on in world politics and at the time in the late 30s? The rise of fascism and people like Mussolini and Hitler. This is not something we're not seeing on the world level at that point, and you got to think that this is probably affecting the writers that they're writing these things. You know,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Now, Dale Arden is the heroine of the series, and across the board, any type of adaption you'll find she's the one true love. You know, they're the pairing, so to speak, yep. and her role varies greatly depending on the adaption the writing in the original comic they never really had a profession for her but over the years she's been a news reporter she's been a travel agent she's been a spy and there even is a not very well-known incarnation but in the 50s they had a tv show and that actually depicted dale as being a competent scientist in her own right now the the one constant in all of this, or the other constant, I should say, aside from she and Flash being in love, is Ming's desire to marry her. You know, he wants to marry her against her will. And, of course, really, can you get much more evil than that, short of killing families or killing children? I mean, forcing somebody to marry, marry against you. their will. I mean, that, that, that's pretty hideous.
1: Right. And, I mean, we're talking a time that was a little bit more subtle, so straight up murder and rape which are the two things that we will go to those levels nowadays but back then you couldn't go to those levels so it was it was the next best thing you could do to truly show how evil an individual was right especially if you're marketing to kids you might mm-hmm. get away with murder off screen or off mic back then you weren't going to get away with rape at all not even alluded to so this was this was your best best option and your only option if you were if you were trying to write stuff for kids
0: yeah, agreed. You know, it's one of those things that we kind of say there's you know the PG version when you see or hear as an adult you get connections that you didn't get when you were a kid. I mean, is right. that phrasing it? Do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, and in our earlier inductees, I mean, yes, there was murder by the bad guys in the Shadow and the Phantom, but it always happened off mic. You know, the Shadow or the Phantom would come in to investigate the crime after it had happened.
0: You right. Know? Or, or you might get the report, so to speak. You might hear right. it happen. It, it's not actually that it happens in in real time right. on the show, right?
1: And the Phantom was more fantasy based and mystical based. And I think you know Shadow was more wasn't really sci fi. It was more pot boiler, true crime kind of feel to it. You know, grittier. Whereas Flash Gordon was more sci fi. And I think the delineation between those three types of geek entertainment are true even today where the actions of the bad guys and the motivations of the bad guys are often very different for those three types even though there might be similarities to the heroes I think you see what I'm going with that
0: yeah I agree I don't know if you heard the motorcycle j- just went by in my house but well, <laughs> it's a great day for it so I guess but,
1: oh, but yeah, yeah. yeah
0: now the third member of the regular heroes there's our other heroes we'll get to in a minute but dr Zarkov, depending on the adaption his first name is either hans or alexis but either way he's the guy that first notices this rogue planet heading on a collision course with earth and he gets the help of flash and dale to help save things now because he's one like an astronomer of the differences, or
1: something is his, is his scientific background, right?
0: Right, right, exactly. And really one of the things that does vary is whether Flash and Dale volunteer or go willingly or whether they're kidnapped at gunpoint and forced to help out. But either way, even when he starts out as a dislikable character, he eventually becomes much more sympathetic and really a hero character in his own right over the course of the adventures it was just more of a he was so concerned and so determined to save the world that you know we'll we'll, we'll worry about permission and such later you know we got to save the world it's it's that type of thing
1: his motivations were pure but his actions were maybe not
0: <laughs> right right and that brings us to the main villain of the flash Gordon franchise throughout all the years there's ming the merciless you know he's the constant adversary literally i think one of the most famous villains in sci-fi history and he is the ruler of the planet mongo and depending on the story rules other planets as well
1: yeah what well, my understanding was is that mongo's always kind of been a moving planet it's not in orbit around any sun correct and yeah. he usually and he usually uh usurps the power and, and under his his
0: thumb the other planets they pass by on this on this trajectory isn't that correct right and think about it this is decades before the force awakens so right you know
1: yeah exactly a exactly. lifetime basically now i do think ming was usually presented as somewhat of a stereotypical stock asian looking character correct
0: with the fu yeah, manchu yeah he kind of had that fu manchu mustache and, and goatee whatever you want to call it shakespearean yeah, or...
1: yeah like, i think they call it van dyke when it comes to a point at the end of your chin
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and and usually had a shaved or bald head um uh, I, I think once again I don't know if that depiction would play today uh but it 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 it's it is what it is in the 1930s Asians were often stopped I mean Fu Manchu was a heel right I mean mm-hmm. so yeah. I mean I would I would dare say after Dracula the most famous bad guy depicted by Christopher Lee would be Fu Manchu and those and those Hammer movies he did after Dracula so yeah there you go
0: <laughs> and one other thing worth mentioning about Ming and his desire of dale is there are times i think it's actually in the old serials that he, not only would he want to make her his wife they use the term his latest wife so that implies right. that there's been others before her who are probably dead now
1: yeah and I, or you can interpret it as maybe he's he's a a, a, a bigamist or a polygamist mm-hmm. i guess you would say and he has he has a harem essentially you know yeah which to western cultured
0: uh, audiences that would be seen as quite taboo and evil. Now on to Voltan. I think he's probably certainly between us, probably our favorite side character. You know, he he yep. is a secondary <laughs> character, but he is the prince of his people of Hawkman. He's a fierce warrior. He originally sees the heroes as adversaries, but the heroes earn Voltan's respect by either saving his people from destruction or after seeing Ming destroy his people. It's one of those things that varies over time. But right. in almost any iteration, he's a large, barrel-chested man. He has honor, a heart of gold. I mean, it's actually not an unfair comparison to look at him as being similar to Thor because Thor has a lot of those yes. uh, traits, specifically Marvel's Thor. You know, he's right. he is a warrior. He can have a weird sense of humor at times and he's he's a bit braggadocious but Thor also recognizes true courage when he sees it and Voltan's very much the same way.
1: Right. And I think aesthetically speaking he does look a lot like, you know, Carter Hall, Hawkman <laughs> from the DC comics. He has wings growing out of his back. Thus they're called that's why they're called, the Hawkman, because his whole race has those and so they can fly and um they're a warrior race, you know, and the Thanagarians are warriors in the D.C. world. So, I mean, uh, if you want to talk influences, I I don't know when Hawk, I can't quite remember when Hawkman came into uh, the D.C. universe, but I think it probably was post Flash Gordon. I believe you know, I so.
0: It, yeah,
1: I think it was the late 30s, early 40s, because I believe he was in the JSA, not the JLA. Mm-hmm. But regardless, I, I would think whoever created Hawkman for D.C. had obviously read Flash Gordon and seen Voltan for the look. Wouldn't you agree with that?
0: I think so. Now, I don't know this, and if anybody does know listening, definitely let us know. These show notes are going to be posted, if you don't see them in your podcast player, they'll be posted at geekvilleradio.com slash flash. See, that even kind of rhymes a little bit, geekvilleradio.com slash flash. But anyway, <laughs> I think it's very possible, like you said, they might have been inspired, but there is enough history there that you couldn't really sue... Or claim copyright because the idea or concept of men or people with wings predates Flash by by so long. I mean, obviously the legend of Icarus, uh the traditional depiction of angels in the Bible you know, the is Christi- that they had in Christi- wings. Yeah, in Christianity Christianity,
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. And I don't think it's just Christianity. I think the Jewish and Islamic faiths also depict angels as having wings as well, don't they? So I mean yeah, yeah, almost Christ. all your all your major Western religions, you know, it's it's been like I said, Icarus is a great example. And Daedalus' father, who built the wings. So, yeah, this, this trope's been around a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Prince Baron, he's another prince of his people. And in most incarnations, he is actually the rightful ruler of the planet Mongo. And he's usually romantically linked to Ming's daughter, Aura, but their relationship can vary given the different adaptions over the years. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. Another one of those things will probably be saying it a few more times before we're done here that it just depends on the adaption that you're reading or or watching now I think we can agree here the the character of Baron I don't know if it was intentional a lot but he's got that Robin Hood like vibe with how he dresses I'm, and the mustache yeah, and everything yeah
1: yeah I think he's also just depicted as very swashbuckling
0: I've mm-hmm.
1: always said I think whoever created Prince Baron was influenced by rudolph Valentino and Errol Flynn and actors of that era in Hollywood and the type of movies and, and heroes they played on the silver screen, you know, the guy with the rapier who would swing from the chandelier and you get the idea, you know, who is a great fighter but is not dependent upon brute strength like a, a Voltan is more about his quickness and you know, uh, cunning. Just yeah. cunning. Think once again to go back to Dungeons and Dragons. Think a ranger. I think is a good analogy for perfect. Yeah. The subclass that Prince Baron would be, whereas Voltan will be more of a, a barbarian-type type, type uh, fighter. They're both fighter-class, but different mm-hmm. subclasses of the fighter.
0: You know? Right. I, I definitely agree with the Ranger analogy because, quite frankly, and I'm not going to go off on a tangent on this, that's the type of character I usually play when I play d d I <laughs> usually go the Ranger route. Uh,
1: I figured you for a paladin, but
0: I can <laughs> see Ranger, too. Yeah. Now, Aura is Ming's daughter, so that makes her the princess of Mongo. Her character can vary based on the adaption of the writer. Most versions do depict her as being smitten with Flash, so she's kind of got the thing for Flash that Ming has for Dale, which is kind of an amusing twist or an amusing subplot. Earlier materials, like if you go back to the time of the original strips, she seems to have this rebellious side it's probably most apparent if you go watch the original serial which is actually based off the first run of the comics we'll get to that in a minute but you know they they did depict her as being rebellious to her father and defending flash only to find out when we go about halfway through the second act that she's just as nefarious as her dad is the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree with her but there are later adaptions where she actually is rebellious and does kind of become a anti-hero or even a hero by the time the main story is right. over
1: right uh once again to talk about how things relate to what we know now as iconic i think the depiction the traditional depiction in the comics of Raisha Ghoul and talia ghul are pretty similar to the the depiction of of mongo and aura or ming and aura
0: do you agree with that yeah, yeah, I actually didn't make that connection myself, but I think it's a valid one.
1: I mean, because if you know the run on, on Batman, Talia's obviously head over heels in love with Bruce. And Bruce doesn't want to be with her because she's a bad guy. And for a long time, she was depicted as somewhat sympathetic, even though just misguided. But as different writers have jumped onto the Batman train, they have to begin to depict Talia more and more as just as despicable as her father. You know, so... Right, I don't. That's that's why I say it. that's. I know uh, for me, getting into Batman later in my comic book run. By the time the Flash, I was aware of Flash Gordon in eighty, like we spoke of earlier, because of the movie. I was already reading comics, but I was only reading a few things. I was reading Spider Man and Ghost Rider mostly. I hadn't really got into DC yet. I didn't get into that till the mid eighties. Once I got into Batman, though that was the first thought that dropped by my mind when I started learning the backstory of Ra's Ghul and Talya Ghul. I'm like, this is Ming and Aura all over again. That's, that was my first thought. So, you know.
0: Now the last character we're going to talk about here is Thun, or Thun. I've seen it pronounced either way. Like Baron and Voltan, Thun is the prince of his people. You may notice a pattern forming here. But he was originally depicted as a lion-like species. He would stand up on two legs had very much a human body with fur and then just had a lion's face and head he did appear the character at least a name only did appear in the Flash Gordon movie that we'll get to in a little bit but in that case he was played by an actor they did not depict him as being a lion man but he is definitely one of those other princes or rulers that have been wronged by Ming and fell out of power, and this kind of became his own little warlord. So you, you, those three princes that we're talking about, they're they are kind of integral to the origin story, because it's those three guys that band together their people to eventually topple Ming. So I figured that's why it was worth talking about them.
1: Sure, sure. And once again, modern-day analogy, he's a Thundercat. Yeah. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> no, I actually didn't think
0: of it that way, but, but yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> he's a Thundercat. <laughs> now, Flash, like A lot of characters, a lot of superheroes debuted in comics. It's kind of funny because when we talk about characters like The Shadow and Green Hornet, they made their debut on radio, but we also talked about The Phantom, who made his debut in a daily slash weekly strip. It was a similar thing with Flash Gordon. You know, there there were books that were published over the years, but they were adaptions, or I shouldn't say adaptions, they were just flat out the the strips kind of collected in omnibus format but the first flash gordon strip was published in january of 1934 and this being fourth of july weekend in the year of our lord 2019 that makes it what 85 years i think yep yep so the character that created flash gordon was an artist at king features named alex raymond i can only assume that he just kind of gave flash his own name just beside the point (laughs) He did do all the drawing, and he did kind of have the vision for the story. While he was the only person credited for these strips, he did have Ghost writers, and there's been a lot over the years. I actually didn't really delve into the number of them or who did what because I think that just kind of be getting a little bit too detailed for this, this summer here. But the important thing is that he was created by Alex Raymond, and Alex basically ran the strip for about 10 years, the first story that aforementioned January 1934 story collectively became known as Flash Gordon on the planet Mongo. And that's what many of the subsequent adaptions were based off of. Because that does tell the origin story of Zarkov, Flash, and Dale going into space, landing on the planet Mongo, and doing this gathering of the masses to, to topple Ming. Now, Raymond was the main creative force on the daily comic strips for about 10 years from January 34 around April 1944 another artist named Austin Briggs began the Sunday strip because a lot of times in these comic strips that you get in the newspaper the daily strip and the Sunday strip for the week are usually unrelated stories they're just different stories that's why the Sunday strip is usually a lot longer than the the daily one but come 1944 Raymond actually left the strip to enlist in the U.S. military for World War II, because he still would have been like his early 30s at the time. So he definitely mm-hmm. would have still been soldier age, so to speak. That's when Briggs took over both strips, and the Daily Strip would run until around 1993. and The Sunday Strip ran until 2003. And there's a couple of very prominent names that worked on Flash Gordon over the years, being... Al Williamson, John Romita Sr., Joe Kubert, which anybody that knows the comic industries knows all of those names. Mm -hmm. So to have all those names connected with Flash Gordon, I mean, that's a heck of a resume, don't you think? Oh, totally agree. The early serials, as we'll get to in a minute, also was based off these daily strips. There actually was a radio serial in 1935. This was a year before the serials in the movies and obviously years before TV that again followed the aforementioned comic strip they were talking about in the latter stages of it though they did stray from the comics to tell original stories but that unlike the previous heroes we've been talking about with green hornet and shadow flash didn't really last too long on radio now the next thing we'll we'll get to here since i'm assuming you, you haven't heard any of the radio serials right
1: uh, no, I mean I knew they existed. Did you have any reasoning why you think that the radio it didn't work for Flash? Where it worked for every, for these other? Was it because it was space based? You think or what?
0: Uh, it, it could be. Maybe it since it wasn't as entrenched as Shadow. Because by this time, you know Shadow, Lone Ranger, and Green Hornet were still kind of early on. You know, really we call them household names, but they they do have sometime ahead of Flash. So maybe it just didn't catch on because these other ones are cool, but that's my own speculation. I don't have a real concrete answer. I can only assume it was a ratings thing.
1: I was just figuring you know, that, that sci-fi, uh, especially as new as sci-fi was, is a much more uh, aesthetic, visual medium. I mean, everybody could kind of get the idea of a cowboy riding a white horse in The Lone Ranger. Right. You know? Whereas it might have just been a harder thing to translate to a purely audio. That's what I was thinking. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, it doesn't could be. Just, just speculating, just speculating.
0: Yeah, because if you say the hero climbs into a spaceship, well, now the listener has like hundreds of different ideas of what the spaceship might look like. Whereas if you say the Lone Ranger jumps on his horse, he's on, he's on a horse, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Now, there were three Flash Gordon serials that were released in theaters. The first one was simply called Flash Gordon. Former Olympic swimmer-turned-actor Buster Crabb portrayed Flash in all three serials, and then James Middleton was also in all three playing Ming. The original story was a 12-chapter story in 1936, two years after the comic made its debut, and it follows again the Flash Gordon on Planet Mongo story. It was a huge hit. It actually launched Buster Crabb's career, made him an action hero. And it's worth mentioning that in 1996, the original serial was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress. So that is definitely a huge feather in the cap for the Flash Gordon franchise because there's a lot of great titles over the years in film that do not have that luxury. I think Star Wars only recently got that. I think it was like uh, well well after the 90s, I think, by the time Star Wars, the original oh, yeah. Star Wars well, made it in. Well,
1: you know, you, you know me being the horror guy. Uh, the original 78 Halloween got that privilege a few years ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's 30-something years after it came out. <laughs> right. So there you go. Cor- correct me if I'm wrong here. The serials were actually more successful than the radio show because my dad specifically remembered going and seeing the Flash Gordon serials as oh, a kid.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The Flash Gordon serial was, I think, when you put it together, it was like the second highest grossing film in 1936. Now, granted, that means it's 12 short films, so people go 12 times. I, I would imagine that would help play a factor.
1: The the fact that it was successful financially probably lends a little credence to my thing of it, it because it's now a visual you're seeing it on film that's probably why it sold a little better.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You know.
1: Now you all you did say that this was that, that was what launched Buster Crab's acting career. Correct. Yeah. So this predated Buster Crab portraying Tarzan in the serials because I know he's mm-hmm. very well known for doing that as well. Right. Wow. I did not know. See, I didn't know that. I'm learning stuff, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: A sequel was produced in 1938 called Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars. Now there is some interesting background on this one because while it is another adaption of a later comic strip, it was changed to take place on Mars because that infamous War of the Worlds radio play had become the national sensation that it was. So battling on Mars kind of became a cool thing. So Thank you, Orson Welles. The story was reworked to take place on Mars instead of Mongo. Sure, but I think
1: if you go back to the roots of sci-fi with H.G. Wells and Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and those early writers, Mars has always kind of been a uh,
0: sci-fi trope, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. And whether it has to do with the potentially being habitable or not, I, I don't know. But it's the closest planet to us. So, you know, that 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 may be why. I Venus may be closer. It's been a while since I've taken an astronomy class. But the series that it was based off of was The Witch Queen of Mongo. Most of the cast returned. Uh, Gene Rogers as Dale, Frank Shannon as Arkoff, and James Middleton made his return as Ming. That was also pretty successful. It led to a third serial in 1940 called Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe. This one, they actually replaced Gene Rogers as Dale with an actress by the name of Carol Hughes. Everybody else is mostly the same, but Ming came back. And the final note that I want to have on on the serials here is Ming was depicted a little bit differently in each of these serials. And the first one, like you said at the beginning of the show, he kind of had that Fu Manchu demeanor to him. In 1938, they gave him more of a devil-type behavior. Because again, the bald head and that little pointy goatee. It right. you know, kind of fits a lot of people's stereotypical image of what the devil might look like. Right. Pitchfork, bifurcated tail, that kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, right. But in yeah. Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, Ming was portrayed as this brutal dictator. Again, like we were talking about before, the world's at war now, and Hitler's all over yeah. the news, so...
1: Hitler, uh, Mussolini, Hirohito, mm, yeah. yeah, makes sense, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> right, it all kind of stems to that making something work for The relatability of the audience. Right. And all the serials were adapted for TV in the 1950s. But to avoid confusion with another Flash Gordon TV show, this serial was simply renamed Space Soldiers. And you can actually look up and find Space Soldiers, build as such on DVD and such. But it, it is actually those original serials from the 1930s.
1: Since you, in your research, you watched and, and, and did a little bit more uh, viewing on this research than I did. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you, no shocker, I think, to any of our listeners, I used to be a regular at midnight showings of Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was mm-hmm. in high school. And, of course, the opening song to the movie, and the play for that matter, is science fiction double feature. And one of the lines in that opening song is, as if, as, as is," and it's probably the second time I ever heard Flash Gordon, because this would have post-dated me as a child seeing it in '80. Now I'm a teenager going to the Rocky Horror. Uh, the the line in the song though is "and Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear." Which one of these <laughs> stories had Flash Gordon in silver underwear?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I have to I have to ask you that since you did the research. Was there any of them, or was this just a cool sounding line that you know well, that, that
0: uh, You know the serials are black and white, so it's kind of hard to see if they're actually wearing silver or not. So right right. You
1: know. Well, I mean, for those of you that don't know, oh, and I'm Richard O'Brien, the, the writer of the play and the, the movie screenplay, who actually plays Riff Raff in the movie, the whole point of Rocky Horror was a tribute to things like Flash Gordon because he had an uncle or someone there in England where he lived who owned a movie theater, and he would sit up in the balcony and watch the old science fiction double features and these Saturday morning serials like Flash Gordon. That's what he's referring to in the whole opening song, science fiction double feature. He talks about Flash Gordon and Day of the Triffids and the Day the Earth Stood Still and stuff like that, you know, and and uh, the Invisible Man. And so, you know, obviously he was influenced by Flash Gordon. And, and I just have always wondered from that line. When did Flash Gordon wear silver underwear? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Go ahead. I'm sorry for changing the topic there a little bit. I think it was relevant, though. I mean, we're talking about how it influenced it. I think Rocky Horror is pretty pop culture iconic in its in its own right now, and it's obviously directly influenced by Flash Gordon. It even says so in the opening theme song, right?
0: <laughs> right, right. Moving along to the aforementioned TV show, it premiered in 1954. So it was and- obviously
1: also black and white. Right, right.
0: And it it starred a fashion model by the name of Steve Holland as Flash. And then there were relatively unknown actors, Irene Champlin and Joseph Nash, who portrayed Dale and Zarkoff. But unlike all the other adaptions, this Flash Gordon actually had an entirely different premise. Instead of adapting stories from the comics, the series took place in the year 3023. And Flash and company are just flying through the cosmos on their, their spaceship. It did air on the Dumont Network, which if you don't recognize that name and amongst the CBS's and uh, USA's of the world, that's because it doesn't exist anymore. It it actually ceased in, I think, sometime in the 60s uh, and, you know, the other networks survived.
1: For our listeners that also listen to our wrestling themed podcast, Dumont was the network that pretty much turned Gorgeous George into a national star. Well, there you go. And Luthez and Vern but I digress. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> there are a lot of fans who dismiss the series because of this, because it's just this completely different premise. You know, kind of not unlike some of the modern adaptions you see of classic stuff where they're, you know, re envisioned or reimagined and such. But there are still fans of the show that will praise it due to Dale being depicted as an intelligence. Scientists in her own right, instead of being the you know the girlfriend in peril. I I do have actually a DVD of some of these episodes because they were like a a dollar rack or something like that at the the supermarket. So I have seen them. They don't really stay the the test of time. I think the serials were probably more timeless than these are. But if you like fifties sci fi, if you kind of like that black and white, uh, you know practical effects type things that maybe you might see in Mr. Science Theater. You, you, you may like it, and it is readily available on
1: And you're, you're an uh, admitted Doctor Who fan. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. The, the, the production values and budget of those type shows were not that dissimilar from the early runs of Doctor Who in the 60s. So. Correct, yeah. And there's our obligatory Doctor Who reference for this episode. <laughs> Anyways.
0: Dale and Zarkov have set out for Mongo on a mission of mercy to prevent the impending collision between Earth and the mysterious comet world. But as their rocket ship enters the atmosphere of the alien planet, there is an unprovoked attack which destroys the guidance system, plummeting them toward unknown dangers below. And now, Chapter
1: 1, A Planet in Peril.
0: That was, of course, the intro to the 1979 animated series that we're going to talk next called Flash Gordon. It was actually retcon to be called the New Adventures of Flash Gordon to kind of give it its own marketable name, but you notice their Train, not only did you get kind of the cool voiceover for the intro, there was that narrator bringing up to speed the viewers on what happened before, and that right. is definitely a trope in a lot of serials and really goes on to this day in a lot of TV shows and movies. And that was exactly what happened in the serials as well. You didn't get the voiceover, you just saw the text. So if you missed chapter two and you were going straight from chapter one to chapter three, you'd still get caught up on the story. And if you're a child of the 80s, Filmation is probably a company name that you're pretty familiar with. It had that stereotypical, like, I don't know if it was a xylophone or whatever was used for the, the jingle at the beginning. That, you know, kind of is a big part of a lot of kids' childhoods in the 80s. But Filmation produced an animated movie that retold Flash's origins. They actually blended several of the early stories together. What's interesting about the movie is it was actually a period piece set in the early days of World War II. It was actually set in 1939, 1940, somewhere around there. In this case... Flash was an Olympic gold medalist. I don't think they said what the profession was, what the sport was. And to give you an idea, Ming the Merciless is kind of the puppet master for Hitler. You know, Ming is like helping Hitler take over the world. That's, that's, that's the type of villain and the, the type of story that they were trying to tell. And it did have more adult themes in it because it was set to air in prime time. That's what they envisioned it as being that it would be a a movie shown in prime time. So there was things that you wouldn't see in a kiddie show. I mean, there's alcohol use, some scantily clad females. There were sexual innuendos here and there. Thun, the aforementioned uh, Lion Man prince, famously said, you have never loved until you've loved a lion woman with fur so soft. I mean, imagine hearing that in an animated (laughs) movie in 2019, you know? (laughs) Oh, boy. <laughs> wow. And, and to top it off, Ted Cassidy was the voice actor for Thun. So, you know, you he's probably most famous for being Lurch in The Adams Family. So if you can imagine Lurch saying that. You know, it's kind of a <laughs> fun visual. But it was shown to NBC execs in 1979, and NBC liked it, but they decided it would probably be better served as a Saturday morning series. So that's exactly what it became. You know, again... 80s and 70s children will probably remember Saturday morning cartoons, but with the format change came a different setting. I don't think it was explicitly stated so, but it did seem to take place in modern day as opposed to World War II, and a lot of these adult-oriented themes like swastikas and, you know, aura being half-naked throughout the entire thing was toned down. But it is regarded as one of Filmation's best series. That's it saying went, a lot. Yeah, yeah, and allow me to drop some names of shows that have been produced by Filmation over the years. You know, stuff like He-Man. You know, She-Ra, Uh I think they had that remake of the '70s Ghostbusters show, unrelated to the Ghostbusters movie. Right. So, you know, uh, I think they also did Brave Star in, in the late '80s. So, a lot. Well, that, of, no,
1: that was. That was IFC, never mind. I was thinking that they might have been in uh, that old live-action Shazam and Isis from the 70s Saturday morning shows. Uh, It
0: it could be, because Filmation did produce some live-action stuff over the years. Now, each chapter was an ongoing story, much like the old serials, and you would get this recap of what happened previously and what is set to happen in this episode, again, much like the serials. The cast was largely the same between the movie and, and the series. The two most notable changes were Alan Oppenheimer took over the voice of Ming and Dr. Zarkov, and then a, an actor named Alan Melvin replaced the late, great Ted Cassie as Thun because Ted Cassie died in the, the late 70s. You may not recognize the name Alan Melvin, but for 70s and 80s kids, he was the voice of Bluto in the later Popeye cartoons. Popeye, Popeye. Yeah, yeah, the not, co- not the, the theatrical co- ones, but the ones that were made specifically for TV. The 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 color ones, not
1: the black and white ones. <laughs> right, right,
0: right. And Alan Oppenheimer. If you don't know the name, I guarantee you, you've heard one of his voices because a few years after voicing Ming, and he used the same voice practically. Alan Oppenheimer was the voice of Skeletor in He-Man. So, you know, there's there's a relatable voice for <laughs> for you if you don't know the name. Sure. But it ran for two years. It ended its run in early 1982. And later in 1982, over almost a year after the series ended, NBC did show that original movie. It only aired once. I don't think it's ever been formally released in the States. There are international releases. And again, it's readily available online. But that is the Flash, Gordon, that I'm most familiar with. I think the animation really does hold up. Considering it's hand-drawn animation, the vehicles moved very well. One of the things that caught my eye as far as the show goes. And so if you have a chance, look it up. Even if it's only the movie, I, I would definitely recommend it. Now, next on the list of Flash Gordon here, we teased it at the beginning of the episode here. But that is, of course, the 1980 feature film. Now I've been yapping for a while, train here. Did you want to say anything to kick off the movie discussion?
1: No, no. I, like I said, I, I knew when we came into this episode, you had done more research on this. And, and my love of Flash Gordon was mostly my dad's remembering seeing the serials, the movie from the 1980s, and the aforementioned line of from, from Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, right, okay. <laughs> now we're getting into the stuff that I know.
0: Yeah, this is... The adaption modern generations are familiar with, and now it's probably just as famous, if not more so, for that soundtrack by Queen. I can't help but wonder if the soundtrack might have been more popular than the movie was.
1: Uh, it's a good possibility.
0: Now, starring as Flash in this 1980 movie was a former Playgirl model, Sam J. Jones. Again, notice a pattern forming with the actors they're picking to play Flash. You know, there is a pattern.
1: Olympic swimmers and male models
0: <laughs> Right, good guys that are going to look good with their shirts off
1: guys that didn't miss ab days right <laughs> right right
0: well Jones was a relatively unknown actor at the time the supporting cast of the film had a lot of talent uh, Brian Blessed was Voltan which after seeing the old serials and the 70s series and reading some of the strips Brian Blessed was the perfect cast for Voltan. I don't know if you could come up with a better cast for that character, Like, even if you could time travel to the past. <laughs> you know, I think we have with <laughs> that, was, right?
1: Yeah, he was perfect
0: for that, no doubt. Max von Sydow played Ming, and Timothy Dalton played Prince Baron. This is a few years before he became Bond. It's very loosely based on the origin story. One change that was made to Flash and it's understandable, is they changed his athletic specialty from a polo player to an NFL quarterback. I believe he's depicted as being the quarterback for the New York Jets.
1: Yeah, because he was supposed to be from New York City, yeah, for the Jets. Right.
0: and Thun, I personally think it was probably due to costume limitations in 1980, but Thun was not, predicted, not depicted as being half lion half man he was just played by an actor This, right. you know, it's one of those characters I think if the, if they had done it now and we'll get to doing it now in a few minutes but uh, it's that type of thing if they were to do it now they probably just would have CGI'd the character but obviously CGI characters didn't exist in 1980
1: yeah well, I would think if they did it they did it today it would be uh, similar to Kelsey Grammer's uh, you know makeup as Hank McCoy and the X-Men mm-hmm. stuff
0: yeah that, that's fair the movie did gain a bit of a cult following, but it's not what anybody would call a hit at the box office. It's a $20 million budget in 1980, which is pretty darn expensive, and it grossed $27 million. The only other thing of note that I can think of, it's unrelated to Flash other than a Sam J. Jones, I think the only other thing that I can remember that he did with any regularity was that mid-80s Highwayman series that was like night Rider, right. but with a truck. I don't think he even acts anymore, does he? I don't. I don't know. I mean, uh, I've seen his name in conventions over the years, so you know, there, there's definitely demand for him in the in the geek culture.
1: Sure, but I don't see him uh, his name at the top of the marquee anytime soon for a, a a blockbuster movie from Hollywood.
0: Right. In the 1980s, Marvel produced an animated series, "Defenders of the Earth," and it paired Flash with fellow King Features characters, the Phantom and mandrake the magician it ran for actually 65 episodes which is a reasonable run for any series i think right perhaps the biggest difference from the comics is that it did take place a little bit in the future i think it takes place like 2015 and there is a cast of kids we talked earlier on about the trope of putting kids in sci-fi to kind of adapt the story but but the group of kids they were all the offspring of the existing characters so it was flash and dale's kid uh, mandrake had a child i think um lothor had yeah yeah, mandrake had, had like a daughter or something didn't he right right other than that early on in the series they actually killed dale off which is you know pretty extreme for a kid's show although they did revive her it was like her her soul or her mind was preserved. So they actually did restore her to life by the end of the the season. But I do remember watching some episodes of it. I didn't understand the characters at the time, quite frankly, but I saw the pilot episode, which if you go to Amazon Prime, it's actually streaming as part of Amazon Prime. I'll I'll put the link in the show notes at geekfulradio.com slash flash. Uh, Did you have any memories of the Defenders of the Earth there, Train?
1: You know, I, I remember seeing it a couple of times. But I'm like you. I don't. I don't. I don't know if it was a matter of just wasn't my cup of tea. I I think if I remember correctly, it was in that time frame where I was discovering girls in the weight room and cars. If you know <laughs> what I'm saying, and getting away from from more of the of the of the. You know, I wouldn't get back into geek stuff until much later in high school, and then it was more mature comic book titles. You know, so there is that As I bring up all the time On regular Geekville Because you're a little bit younger than me There's certain parts of geek culture That I just wasn't into Thundercats, Transformers, Mm -hmm. G.I. Joe um, This was, I think, probably part of that as well
0: You know We were originally going to leave off With the Defenders of the Earth talk But literally as I was preparing notes for this Last week, the news hit that Taiki Waiti. I'm I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly.
1: Waiti? I don't... Yeah, it could be. The New Zealander who directed Ragnarok. That guy. Right,
0: right. right. The the director of the third Thor movie. He is talking about developing a Flash Gordon feature film for Disney. And if you are going to do a Flash Gordon animated film, I don't know if Waiti's done animated work before, but I think doing it animated is, is a good idea, and I also think that Ragnarok format, where it's kind of just as much a comedy as it is a sci-fi space opera, I think he's a good mix for that. I think you'd probably agree with that, right?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I don't think you have to watch anything but, you know, uh, Ragnarok and understand that he can, he can definitely walk that very, very thin line between fun action-adventure but a little bit of silliness – but when there's an action scene, for goodness sakes, he gave us he gave us the closest we're gonna get to Planet Hulk, didn't he? We right, got yeah. he gave us a a a really good Thor versus versus Hulk fist fight. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I have I have a lot of confidence in his ability to do that. You know, and 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 he used Jeff Goldblum. So you know, hey.
0: One thing I hope they do in the Disney Flash Gordon is I'd be quite happy with a Mark Mothersbaugh. Soundtrack. He did the the music for Thor Ragnarok. Now, if you don't recognize that name, you will probably recognize the band name. He was the front man for the '70s and '80s group Devo. Right. So, it'd you be know, that that kind of fits perfectly, I think.
1: Uh, you don't get more geek more geek than Devo,
0: except for maybe Weird Al. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, we'll close out the discussion here. So, we finish inducting Flash Gordon as our fifth inductee into the Lethal Geek Hall of Fame. He really is one of the most influential characters in science fiction. And I think the biggest thing that we could point to as far as influence, George Lucas, after making American Graffiti, wanted to do a Flash Gordon movie. He couldn't get the rights to do that, so he wound up creating something called Star Wars, which, I mean, I think it worked out pretty well. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I <laughs> Could it's decent size, you know? Could have been big, but you know. <laughs> yeah, made a few
1: dollars, you know.
0: And w- one of the things about the old serials, especially the third one, Flash Gordon conquers the universe. The serials would open with text crawling up about what happened in the previous episodes and what happened when people saw the original Star Wars. They get that yellow scrolling text flying around in space. That's right out mm-hmm. of Flash Gordon, right, right there now.
1: And and that's Uh, become so important. Think if you don't believe me, how important that that just that little thing has become. Go back and 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 go back in your Twitter machine and back onto your social media and look at the fervor that was created when it was announced that Rogue One, the first standalone Star Wars movie, was not going to have it. That that, I think that some of how (laughs) influential that was. But you know, I digress.
0: And I was one of those that was not complaining about that. I was I was fine with it for what it's what it's worth. Eh, I had mixed feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to mention as far as any influence or any Flash Gordon memories no, I, you have? I, I,
1: I, I think Flash, for me, it was I, – I, I see the – like you said, if we, we talk about the influences of Star Wars as kind of obvious. as I As I learned a little bit more about Flash as I got older and away from the 80s movie, I was able to see how he did influence a lot of the stuff I liked. Um, like I said earlier, the Dale character to me, depending on the depiction by, of the, the writer at the time, to me, she wasn't that dissimilar from Princess Leia or the Aaron Gray character from the old Buck Rogers TV show. The, the, the hot chick who, by the way, could kick some ass on her own you know, mm-hmm. um, and was smart and clever, and I liked that. Um, I thought that was cool. – I mean, I'm a fan of slasher movies. I have a thing for, for Final Girls, the smart girl who beats the bad guy because she's smart and not silly and dumb like her friends. Um, so, yeah, and he, come on, it's Brian Blessed. He was awesome as that. That was always a, a fond memory for me, and it's something I, And I didn't really know who Tim Dalton was, and I thought he was awesome as Prince Baron. So that movie did have an effect on me, and I'm a football player, so I love the fact he was a football player. Well, the only thing I hated about that whole thing was it was obvious from the ending, because it has a twist ending, Spoiler alert, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Ming wears this power ring, essentially, that uh, at the end of the movie, when he quote unquote dies and turns to dust, the ring is left there on the ground. Well, at the end of the credits, they close up on the ring. It says the end, something that looks like the gloved hand of, of Ming picks up the ring and you hear Ming, a voiceover of Ming's laughter. And then a question mark comes at the end of the text, the end. So it's mm-hmm. obvious from that, and then we never got it, you know. So I, I think that's one of the great regrets of all geekdom is how come we never got our star, our our Flash Gordon sequel because it was obvious. I mean, well, I mean, I think he man was probably set up to be, and the Master of the Universe was probably set up to be a sequel the way the Skeletor popped up out of, back up out of the goo, but we didn't get that either. <laughs> so uh <laughs> uh we're always being let down by geek movies of the 80s but anyway I mean yeah I think Flash to me that's 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 what he always will be to me Flash Gordon is just one of those great cheese-tastic movies from the the that era that I love it formed a part of my geek fandom um and it, it it's will will always be I mean I think and the other thing too I, we talked about this off mic is that I think Flash Gordon is—he is so iconic in the tropes, like the little three—the three man group you talked about. We discussed some of these things off, Mike, about my love of what he did, and you don't even realize it because, I mean, no one hardly watches old movie serials anymore. You know, I mean, they're available. You can find them on YouTube and uh, and you know in these DVD box sets and stuff of classic television or classic movies but nobody watches them and it's kind of sad and I think Flash is one the Lone Ranger for good or bad is remembered or known by the current generation because of that god awful Bruckheimer movie right mm-hmm. uh, the Shadow had the, the Alec Baldwin movie in the 90s so some people some people, younger people know it Flash was 1980 you know and and he just is not as well remembered which is why I thought he needed to be inducted and and then ming and we'll go into this more cuz you know spoiler alert like you said earlier ming is going to be inducted at some point and probably would be the first villain we induct um i see a lot of palpatine in in ming mm-hmm. i see a lot of doctor doom in ming i see a lot of lex luthor in ming so you know um like you said a hero is only as good as his villain Ming, to me, is such an icon. in many ways, Ming's, Ming's cooler and more iconic than Flash Gordon is. So that is probably the biggest thing I take away from Flash Gordon and what I know about the character and what I've enjoyed of the character is that he might have the best damn villain in the history of sci-fi. <laughs> and that's saying a lot because that probably puts him up there with Darth Vader and Palpatine. And That's all I can say.
0: There we go. Day 14. Lesson on Geek Hall of Fame, entry number 5. Flash Gordon in the lesser known geek hall of fame. Join us tomorrow where we will reach the halfway point, day 15, in Napod Bomo. We'll do something for maybe some of the sports geeks. We'll uh, maybe talk about some superheroes playing football and what I like to call the superhero bowl. That's what's on tap for day 15. This is Geekville Radio. You can find us at geekvilleradio.com. You can subscribe there. Find us on social media. At Geekful Radio on Twitter, X, Facebook, and Instagram, give us some be- feedback. Give us some feedback. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. Give us a review. We're all over the podcast space: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeart Radio, Spotify. Pretty much, you name it, you can find Geekful Radio and our plethora of other shows. And you can find Crazy Train at Train underscore JB. I know he hasn't been around much lately, but he does miss you guys. So if you like the show, let him know. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow with the Superhero Bowl. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and/or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren Podcast family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders. All rights reserved.